Tonight, we're just kind of giving some vision to what Exodus does. We've got some people who are checking it out. We've got some people who have been here for a while. We've got some people who are kind of in and out. And I want to just spend a little bit of time just casting a little bit of vision of what Exodus does. And we're going to be talking a little bit about hearing from God, which is a series that we're in. So what's the purpose of Sunday nights, which you're here at right now? Our vision for Sunday nights is that this is a time when we equip one another. And the one another is the key that makes Exodus different than many other ministries. And that is that I am a strong believer that the Holy Spirit that resides in all of us speaks in the body of Christ. That's probably one of the primary ways that God speaks. So from the beginning, Exodus has been going for seven years in this model now. What we do is we teach and we allow people to jump in at any point. Raise their hand, interject a question, pose a different point of view, say something that comes up in the discussion, and we wrestle together in this room because I believe that as we do that, as we let the Holy Spirit work in different people here in the room, in the comments that are said, that the truth comes out in a much different way than if I just spoke to you. In fact, I think if I just speak to you, you'll probably retain like 10% of what I say. I know because I do that on Sunday mornings. I preach to a larger group of people, and I think by the time they hit the parking lot, they've forgotten half the things I've said. And I like to think that I can be dynamic and have like lots of things that are really important, but I really sometimes want to run after them to the parking lot and go, could you remember like the second point I made and just look at the blank stares on people's faces? I believe that when you get to say, you know what, I don't agree with that. Or when you have trouble with something I'm saying, or when you say, you know what, that's, that's not deep enough. I want you to go deeper. I want you to actually answer that because I don't think that's a good enough answer. That's like a Christian book answer. I want like a real answer because I'm struggling. Then I think we're going to learn more. And I think we're going to remember it more and it's going to stick more. And that's what we do. So that's what Sunday nights is really about. It's our chance to actually go deeper simply by allowing people to speak and to talk back and to wrestle together in this room. I'll tell you, there's a lot of times when I've been studying like maybe 10 or 15 different things, and I come in here and I figure, hey, look, I've got 45 minutes or an hour. I don't know what I'm going to talk about exactly. And as I'm talking, I'm going this way, and one of your comments takes the whole discussion this way. And later as I reflect on it, I go, that's exactly where we needed to go. I actually might have just gone down one road and kept going, and it might not have mattered to anybody. And that one comment or those two comments reminded me of a whole thing that I had been reading that I thought, nah, nobody cares about that. And it turns out that's exactly what people care about. And that's done in here. So what do we do at Sunday nights? We, we do this every week. We're here all the time. You're welcome to come in. And then we record all of our talks and we podcast them on the internet. And I think that's a secondary place that I'm really happy that we get to reach people. So if you can't be here or you miss a week, you'll be able to go onto the internet. There's probably right now, I don't know, maybe 20, 25 different series on the internet that you can download and listen as people have interacted in the past over all the years that we've done this. So in the back, there's a book over there of just people that have written us emails from different parts of the country and some of them from different parts of the world who just listen into some of the podcasts and respond and talk back through email because they're not here in the room. And so I believe that even the people who are in this room, when you're asking a question, a lot of times you're asking a question that somebody many months from now is going to be very glad that you asked. Or you push back in a way that's recorded and somebody later on is going to, we get it all the time. That is exactly the question I wanted to know and I'm glad that blank asked that question. And we get people who actually kind of have fans, like I like the questions that so-and-so asked or whatever. So, you know, can like, someday we're going to have trading cards, you know, where you can like have, you know, like you can have, we're going to put people's picture on the internet so you can go like, that's the person I've been following, you know. You can vote for your favorite question asker, you know. 
So not only are you helping one another in this room, but you're actually doing something you will never imagine. We have talks that have been recorded five, six years ago that people still write to us about and talk about questions that are asked by people who have long left because they've graduated or moved away. But that question still gets asked week after week every time it's downloaded. And if you want to check out some of those things, there's the book in the back. There's also a little thing next to it that talks about like frequently asked questions about why we do what we do. And that's a little bit more in depth as to what I just said. But this is our place to really spend together in a very unique place. Okay? So that's kind of like an overview of what we do and who we are. So let's just briefly describe where we've been in this Hearing God series and kind of just push forward just a little bit tonight. We've said so far in summarizing a book that Dallas Willard has written that God created us to enjoy friendship with him. The second point that comes out of that is conversation is at the heart of every friendship. So by the transitive property of friendship, it means that if we're going to have a relationship with God and we're going to have a friendship with God, it needs to be conversational. That's the point that's been made. And we've really been looking at that point and, and asking, really? Is it really? I mean, you could look at this on its face and say, sure, that sounds right. But it doesn't match a lot of our experience. At least that's where we started from. That many of us, while we'd say, yes, it would be nice to have a conversational relationship with God, we really don't feel it. We don't see that happening in our life as much as we would like to. So we're left to either think, maybe something's wrong with me, or we've been pushing back to say, maybe he's not conversational. Maybe Dallas Willard is wrong. So he's defined it in a way, and we've kind of added to the definition, the conversation, if we're going to say that we have a conversation with God, it needs to be something other than all of those things that you see on the screen like God speaking or an angel showing up or a vision or some sort of prophecy or somebody else speaking to you. It needs to be something that you are having almost on your own in a private moment with God. And right there, some people push back and said, this just sounds too individualistic, that God would take the time to speak to every one of us individually. That just seems too American, that we would expect that he's got to speak to every one of us and we've got to hear from him whenever we want to hear from him. Because that seems to be at the heart of a conversational relationship the way we'd like to define it. So that's where we left one of the first weeks. We came back and said, what is a conversational relationship in the second week? We were talking about if there's this thing where you're supposed to actually hear from God conversationally, how might it happen? And we were, again, looking to Dallas Wood to explain it to us. Like, what is it that we should be looking for? And these are the things we put up on the screen it might be impressions, emotions, thoughts, that still little voice in your heart. Those are the kinds of things that in the midst of prayer, you're supposed to be able to tune into it, kind of like tune the radio dial and listen in and go, ah, there it is. That must be a thought that isn't my own. That might be God speaking to me. And again, the room was a little bit split. Some people thought, yes, that's exactly how it works. Because I always know that thought can't be mine. I got an emotion that can't be mine. I felt this impression. It's not me. It's got to be God. And the other half of the room was saying, <laughs> it just seems too subjective. That just seems like it's a little bit too difficult to figure out. Uh, you know, this is making me feel uncomfortable. Like, how do you know which way to go? So we brought in a different perspective in the third week. And a different perspective was another well-meaning, very smart Christian who was saying, I've read Dallas Willard's book and I don't buy it. I don't think God speaks to our heart at all. I think if God wants to speak to us, you're going to hear it audibly like a real person. It's good that you hear things in your heart because that's probably your conscience or maybe that's wisdom or maybe that's what you've been taught. That's good. You should listen to that, but that's not God. 
God would speak to you in a way that's unmistakable, God's going to show up in the scriptures. God might show up with somebody coming to give you a prophetic word. God might show up in a burning bush. God might show up in a lot of ways, a vision, maybe a dream, maybe an angel, but he's probably not showing up in your heart. So stop looking for him there. And man, there were enough people who I thought were going to go with that, and they kind of pulled up at that moment. Last week, what happened was we broke up into four groups, which we've never really done in this group before. And we had all four groups consider which one of these do you think is the right approach and let the groups kind of deliberate it out. I'll tell you honestly, I did not expect the groups to come back with a unanimous kind of consensus. But the consensus last week was that, yeah, I think God does speak in our hearts that way. I would say that that was the majority consensus of all four groups, which from my perspective was a little surprising. Because I thought Philip Carey's position would win the day with more of you than it ultimately did. I thought more of you would say, yeah, you know what? About 20 years into this now, I've been looking for this voice and I can't find it or I'm not sure what it is. And it would be very liberating to just believe it's not there. And that's where we get to tonight. And tonight, what I want to do is I want to consider this question with you. If it's true that God speaks to us in ways that we're supposed to discern, like a thought, like an emotion, like an impression, like a presence, like something that's different, we have two problems. One is, how exactly does that happen? And the second question is, how do I distinguish it from everything else that's in my head? And if you're like me, there's a lot of things in your head, right? <laughs> some of it good, some of it crazy, right? You ever woken up in the morning and paid attention to what you're thinking in those first few moments when you get up? Like, I believe that we're all fundamentally weird at our core. And when we wake up, those crazy thoughts that are going through our heads, we're at our weirdest at that moment. But those are totally unfiltered thoughts. And as we wake up, we learn, we remember, most people do, to put on our social regulator, right? <laughs> so that we don't walk out of the house and actually say those things that we're actually thinking, right? And by about an hour into it, you're a fairly normal person, right? But if I could capture the thoughts in your head in the first five minutes after you wake up, I think we'd all be fundamentally weird. How in the midst of that, by the way, are we to sort out the ideas, the impressions, the emotions, the thoughts that come into our head from God? So that's something we have to work on, and we will actually solve that issue next week. I'm not a morning person. Yeah, I'm not a morning person at all. You know, yeah, that's... Who's a morning person here? Is anybody a morning person? Are you saying you don't have weird thoughts when you're a morning person? I mean, maybe it's just me because I'm not a morning person. <laughs> Never mind, all that stuff about weird stuff, that was from the book. That isn't about me at all. <laughs> just summarizing. <laughs> Is my fly down? Um, <laughs> just me? We're going to solve next week, how do you sort out all those things in your head? Because I think it's a very important question. Because if you believe, as the consensus seemed to be, that you can hear from God in your head or your heart or you're going to hear those things, we have to do some filtering and identify that. Here's the task for today. There are people who are also weighing in on this discussion who are not coming from a purely religious standpoint. There's a field developing called neurotheology. 
And this field posits the following. It's true that you can hear God in your head because God is only in your head. And that's the only place you're ever going to find him. Here's what I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine that you're driving down the road and you're going to hear the radio snippet that we're going to listen to. It's about eight minutes long. I want you to just imagine that you're driving your car and you hear this because that's exactly what millions of people did when this report came out. At least by my accounts, normally about 14 million people heard this report on NPR. And it was basically saying that God is, for the most part, only in your head. And scientists in this field of neurotheology are being able to start pinpointing that that's exactly why people like Dallas Willard think that you can hear God in your head, because that's where he is, purely in your head. What I'd like you to do is listen to this, and we're going to interact with it afterwards and see what you think of whether this is true. And by the way, what they're going to be talking about, so you can picture it real fast, is this. They're going to talk about the God helmet, all right? And this is the actual picture of the God helmet, which is, which is developed by Dr. Michael Persinger that you're going to hear mentioned in this story. And this is how it works. Dr. Persinger puts this on your head, and it delivers magnetic impulses into your brain. And they'll describe it in a little bit more detail. But as this happens, people have reported seeing angels, the Virgin Mary. People have felt God's presence. People have heard things. By the way, people have also seen other religious expressions that relate to their religious tradition. So it's not specific to a Christian God in any way. In fact, some people just feel peace. Other people feel they've entered into a meditative state. Whatever kind of tradition you've been raised in, you input that when you get these kind of impulses and you come out with this religious experience. So I just want you to know what they're talking about. And of course, they're going to use this to say, God is in your head because we can reproduce it in the laboratory and make you have religious experiences by just stimulating your brain in a certain way. So why don't you put that on, let's listen to it, and then we'll come back and interact with it. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Melissa Block. And I'm Michelle Norris. More than half of American adults have reported that they've had a spiritual experience, an overpowering feeling that they touched God or another dimension of reality. Was that feeling a real connection with something unearthly or simply chemicals at play in your brain? This week, NPR's Barbara Bradley Haggerty is exploring the science of spirituality. Today, she hunts down the brain's God spot. If you're looking for evidence that religion is in your head, you need look no further than Jeff Schimmel. The 49-year-old Los Angeles writer was raised in a conservative Jewish home, but he never bought into God until after he was touched by a being outside of himself. Yeah, I was touched by a surgeon. About a decade ago, Schimmel had a benign tumor removed from his left temporal lobe. The surgery was a snap, but soon after that, unknown to him, he began to suffer many seizures. He'd hear conversations in his head. Sometimes the people around him would look slightly unreal, as if they were animated. Then came the visions. He remembers twice, lying in bed. He looked up at the ceiling and saw a swirl of blue and gold and green colors that gradually settled into a shape. He couldn't figure out what it was. And then, like a flash, it dawned on me, this is the Virgin Mary... And, you know, it's funny, I laughed about it because why would the Virgin Mary appear to me, a Jewish guy, laying in bed looking at the ceiling? She could do much better. Schimmel became fascinated with spirituality. He became more compassionate, less ambitious. So he wondered, could his new outlook have to do with his brain? 
The next visit to his neurologist, he asked to see his most recent MRI. My left temporal lobe looked completely different than it did before the surgery. Gradually, it had become smaller, a different shape, covered with scar tissue. Those changes had sparked electrical firings in his brain. Schimmel's doctor told him he had developed temporal lobe epilepsy. It's a disease that has fascinated doctors for centuries. Going back 2,500 years ago, Hippocrates wrote one of the first texts we have on epilepsy and named it on the sacred disease. Sacred, says neurologist Oren Davinsky, because the ancients thought that people we now believe had epilepsy were possessed by demons or blessed with divine messages and visions. Davinsky, who directs the Epilepsy Center at New York University, says neurologists suspect some religious giants were epileptics themselves. Did Paul hear Jesus on the road to Damascus, or was he experiencing an auditory hallucination? What about Joseph Smith and the two angels? or Muhammad, Joan of Arc, and Moses. Do you see that strange fire? A bush that burns? Uh, it is on fire, but the bush does not burn. Assuming, for now, a, a more rational scientific view, he was having a visual hallucination, and he heard God's voice. I am the God of thy father. It could have been God. It could have been a seizure. But one thing Davinsky does believe. Whatever happened back there in Sinai... Moses' experience was mediated by his temporal lobe. The temporal lobes run along the sides of the brain, and deep within them is part of something called the limbic system. This system handles not just sound, smell, and some vision, but also memory and emotion. Now, when people have a seizure in the temporal lobe, it's as if the normal emotions have an exclamation point after them, because so many nerve cells are firing in rhythm. People may hear snatches of music drawn from their memory bank. And in rare cases, interpret it as music from the heavenly spheres. Those people may see a glimpse of light and think it's an angel. These patients give us clues to what parts of the human brain are involved when all of us have a numinous experience. That's Jeffrey Saver, a neurologist at UCLA. He says when people with no brain dysfunction have numinous or spiritual experiences, it's the same limbic system being activated, but with the volume turned down. Saver's explanation made me wonder, if God uses the temporal lobe, can neurologists make God come and go at will? Well, they can make ecstatic seizures go away with surgery or medication, but what about summoning God? Could a scientist manufacture a spiritual experience by manipulating my temporal lobes? Ms. Haggerty, can you respond, please? Uh, I can barely... You're very muffled. I'm sitting in Michael Persinger's laboratory. Persinger, a neuroscientist at Laurentian University in Sudbury, Ontario, has pasted eight electrodes onto my scalp. He eases, of all things, a motorcycle helmet with its own sensors onto my head. He calls it the God Helmet. Okay, I'm getting a bias here. The helmet is supposed to stimulate my right temporal lobe with weak magnetic fields and create the illusion of God in my head. Well, not God exactly, but a sensed presence, a feeling that another being is in the room. Yeah, everything's ready to go. Persinger covers my eyes with goggles stuffed with napkins. I sink deeper into the threadbare, overstuffed chair, feeling like a teenager hanging out in someone's basement. He leaves me in the chamber and returns to the control room, where I've placed a recorder. 
It's recording. Good, thank you. For the next 30 minutes, I listen to magnetic fields shift over my skull. Occasionally, I report seeing images or a dark forest. It's kind of a roiling darkness, like a, a battle of darkness. Okay. It's off to my left. You've just reported the actions on your left, and now you are beginning to experience, and my compliments to you, what is called the, the black or the dark of the dark. Actually, I couldn't hear him say that. He was talking into my recorder in the other room. At one point, Persinger predicts I am right on the verge of feeling the sensed presence, but it never happens. Now, there were several times when Persinger predicted I'd see an image or a face, and I did. To Persinger, this is evidence that God and all spiritual experience is a product of your brain. What is the last illusion that we must overcome as a species, and that illusion is that God is an absolute that exists independent of the human brain, and that somehow we are in his or her care. Well, believers are certainly going to take issue with that, and so do many scientists. So I put the question to NYU's Oren Davinsky. Does the fact that we can track spiritual feelings in our temporal lobe mean there's nothing spiritual going on? No. Think about a man and a woman who are in love, he says. They look at each other, and in all likelihood, something fires in their temporal lobes. However, does that negate the presence of true love between them? Of, of course not. When you get to spirituality, as a scientist, it really becomes extremely difficult to say anything other than it's possible. Remember Jeff Schimmel, the guy with temporal lobe epilepsy? He finds it hard to believe that his new faith and love for his fellow man come merely from an electrical impulse that's gone awry. But I'll tell you what the real bottom line is for me. I don't care where it comes from. I'm just a happier person. I'm a more decent human being because of it. Schimmel has taken up Buddhism to harness his spiritual life. Now Buddhist monks and other long-term meditators are coming under the gaze of brain researchers, spiritual virtuosos. That's tomorrow's story. Barbara Bradley Haggerty, NPR News. So what do you think? Is God in your brain? Totally in your brain? I mean, that went out to millions and millions of people who are driving home wondering what to make of that. Ben. Um, it seems like it's a bit of a leap of logic to, because you can stimulate this and it produces an experience similar to this, therefore this is creating it. I mean, we just listened to a recording which was generated by electronic impulses in a speaker that made us think that someone was talking to us who was not here. It's the same line of logic that back in the old days, uh, scientists used to think that the eyes on the human head produced the light that reflected off objects back into them. Okay, so you think there's a leap of logic? I think there's a little bit, at least. Okay, anyone else? What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, I think he kind of went a little off track when he went from like, okay, so here's this effect I just measured to there is no God. You know, like the, it seemed like he went like from science to philosophy pretty quick. Sure, this is a very important point that I think a lot of us miss. Uh, science is a philosophy. I'll even credit the person who's opened my eyes to this, this Fuzz Rana, at Reasons to Believe. He's kind of brought this along. Like, what happens is there's probably the spiritual realm, and in theology, we're trying to interpret it. There's the natural realm, and science is trying to interpret it, right? Science isn't a, you know, an objective thing. It's an interpretation of it. So he's looking at this natural order, and he's saying, well, if I can produce this in a laboratory, and by the way, 80% is the number that has been documented through repeat 80% of people who put the God helmet on will have some sense of a presence, a being, a religious experience of some kind. So his position would be, if I can get 80% of people 
just through magnetic stimulation, isn't it logical to believe that natural things in the world, not a helmet, but natural magnetic forces are what create the illusion of God for us. That's exactly the way he says it. The reason he uses magnetism is because it's naturally occurring in the real world. He was looking for causes that were naturally occurring. And, and the God helmet is meant to mimic naturally occurring causes because what he's trying to say is, well, if there was a magnetic storm, let's say, or a meteor shower, whatever causes that kind of, and people had religious experiences, Maybe there isn't a God. Maybe it was just an accident of magnetism. Yes. My question is, though, out of all those people, like, did he tell them what the helmet was supposed to do ahead of time, or was it a blind study? I mean, because they might be like, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to feel this thing when I had something on. Like, and, I mean, it seems like if it wasn't a blind study, that his whole study is really flawed. Okay, that's a good criticism, and other people have leveled the same thing about the fact that it's received so much press that it's very hard to do an objective measurement of what it's actually doing. Zach. It also doesn't account for like shared religious experiences. Like, if you even if a group of people standing in a field were all affected by the same magnetic waves, would they all see the same exact thing? Like Jesus rising up into heaven after he rose from the dead. Yes, it probably could not explain anything miraculous, and he's not even trying, right? So if we saw a physical miraculous event like the ascension that you just described, it would be difficult to even discuss this kind of thing, right? And our tangent here, just so that you remember, is because we're saying that we believe that God somehow speaks internally, that somebody is saying, sure, and I can tell you why, it's really just a naturally occurring phenomenon. It's not any kind of connection with the divine. So, but if we saw a miracle physically, that would be something he'd say, yeah, that's different. I'm not even addressing that. That could be a strange reason. Abby. I'm pretty, like, I'm pretty okay with the idea that this could potentially be like, something that actually happens. Um, but I guess my question would be, like, does that mean that it's limited to only that? Like, is that the way that God does speak? Or can God also go like, through a different way conversationally? Because, I mean, whether, whether or not it's like the truth, I think that there's something to be said about it. Um, like something would have come up or like there would have been more opposition against it if there isn't maybe some bit of truth in it. Um, but yeah, I guess my question is, is that the only way then that God uses our brain? Okay. Yes. Not only that, I mean, people have had religious experiences or seen all kinds of stuff on like psychedelic drugs too, and they never said, oh, God's just because of drugs, or like, you know, like, it's all in your head. I mean, so, I mean, how is this any different? It's still it's something affecting your brain, I mean. Okay, but let me take that on for a moment. It's true that religions for a long, long time have used drugs to induce a level of spirituality, right? But how comfortable would we feel if for example, the Apostle Paul said that, yeah, while I was writing much of the New Testament, I was taking some LSD. <laughs> uh, I think most of us would get kind of uncomfortable, right? We want to believe that he was totally 100% sober-minded when he was saying all the things that he was saying and not like, well, I was feeling a little like, you know how we get a little spiritually depressed once in a while? We feel like, like I don't know, I'm not really connected to God. So he just said, I was in that place and I just decided to take some hallucinogens. And then I, I became very prolific and wrote most of the New Testament. Yeah, we'd probably hope that that's not the explanation. I mean, you heard in this story, they said his experience, and, and Persinger has written more and so have other people, that maybe the whole road to Damascus experience that he has 
is very consistent with temporal lobe epilepsy, including the blindness and all the things. You know, some of these guys are like, we could diagnose him even 2,000 years ago just from the description in the New Testament that he had an epileptic seizure on the way to Damascus. It's a stretch. Most scientists will admit it's a stretch. What I'm saying is we're probably in the camp that thinks we don't want that at all. Cormac. Well, I've said this before, but like, I mean, everything we experience or sense, like, goes on in our brains. So, like, um, like, of course, like, if we're conscious of, like, feel, like, sensing something or hearing something, then there's activity in our brain. But that, does that mean that, like, the source, that doesn't tell us anything about, where the, about what the source is. And just because we can, like, stimulate that part of our brain and experience those types of things doesn't mean that that's the only place the stimulation comes from. It's, like, something... Physical. So like this, this like has nothing to do with. Uh, to me, it doesn't have anything to do with like whether or not God speaks to us. Because, for like for God to speak to us and for us to comprehend it, there will be physical activity in that part of our brain. Okay, going this way. Yes, Stephanie. I think what I have to say kind of goes in line with what Cormac was saying. But I mean, my study of neurology is so limited. But from what I know, I mean, we know so little about the human brain. So I don't know. It, it just kind of it, it seems to me to be an easy way to explain away faith. And they're just kind of like putting a label on it. Oh, well, see, it's just all in your head. And I'm like, um, okay, I thought it was all faith. Okay. Morgan. I was just going to say, Cormac's point, are psychologists maybe attacking this? I mean, I don't know if you did any research just on, after this came out, I mean, did, did people say similar things like Cormac saying, hey, everything has to be processed by the name That's exactly the response of most people who are critical of this. I mean critical of this being scientists. Of course, all Christians are critical of this automatically. <laughs> you know, like they're probably preaching sermons all day long about it, right? I mean, but the scientific community is kind of following where Cormac is going in some way, which is saying, all right, so the fact that you are able to stimulate this part of the brain and create this reaction, assuming that you're actually able to do it, which, you know, 80% is pretty good, but they'd like to see a you know, one-to-one, -one, you know, absolutely predictable pattern in science. But let's just say 80% is good enough. Assuming you've identified that, that doesn't mean necessarily that you've identified the source when people aren't putting the helmet on, right? And that's a part that I think is really important here as a defense to it, which I'm going to come back in a minute to. Now. Um, yeah, I was just going to say, like, from a physics perspective, um, we don't necessarily know exactly what our can't it could very well be that, right? Wouldn't the twist on all of this be that ultimately we find out that when God speaks, it produces electromagnetic waves, right? Like, wouldn't that be the twist on everything in, in all of this discussion? Also, it's a very vaguely defined uh, set of characteristics for what he's trying to replicate, or, or he just says, put on this helmet, tell me what you see. Right. That's a good criticism. Megan and then Ben. Well, and I want to be careful not to just dismiss it just because it's like, ah, threatening. And not that anyone's doing that. But it, it's hard to figure out, like, yeah, what do you make of what seems like kind of contradictory? But I guess for me, like, I don't feel incredibly threatened, I guess, by the fact that someone can generate these images or this, like, voice of God, and therefore, like, how could God really appear in those ways? Because, like, he's never appeared to me in those ways. You need this helmet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if they put a fish on this thing and put it in the Christian bookstore. 
let's go with that for a moment. Do you remember in the story how they said that they could make people hear music that they had stored in their memory? Let's go with that for a moment. Let's say that through some weird helmet that I put on your head, I can make you hear a song that you've heard before. Does that mean you didn't hear the song before? Does that mean it's not stored in your brain? I mean, let's just say that I've accessed the part of your brain that allows me to retrieve information like off of a hard drive. Does that mean that the information's not there? And that's actually kind of where people are starting to push back on this and say, okay, but that still doesn't answer the question of who's the one that's stimulating this part of the brain? Right, I could be jumping to the Christian answer here, but even in Dallas Willard's book, one of the things he talks about is you know, um, sometimes God is speaking to people, but we're not listening. Like you have to have a fine-tuned pitch, you know, just, just like anything else. Like, you know, those little dog whistles that our ears can't hear, right? But use that as an analogy. So you could even say if that's happening, um, and if this is recalling things that are stored, you could even go to some logic where you say, well, maybe those are small voices that you're able to even, that, that we're not attuned to because we don't know how to listen to God. Or I mean, you can kind of begin to create an argument pretty quickly and say, well, what if this is actually stimulating something that's already going on um, at a much smaller, fine-tuned level that we don't normally interact with? Okay. By analogy, by the way, I can make you all see a yellow helmet. Does that mean, a, <laughs> what does that mean? It all went through your brain, and Cormac's made this point before, that you seeing that, or even trying to understand it, has to go through your brain in some way. So the fact that I've manipulated your eyes with the PowerPoint to see that, and that you've now seen it and can maybe even recall it later, I don't know answers any question, actually. It probably leaves more questions open. Ben? Yeah, I was wondering if, I mean, if you're putting electromagnetic impulses going directly into the brain, like that's an intense amount of, you know, is that stuff that's normally found in nature, like that amount? Well, I don't know if the amount that he's doing is really normally found in nature. One example he gives in an interview I read is that maybe a meteor shower or something like that. So it's extraordinary events. It's not like you're just near the power lines. You know, I, I have a feeling it's probably more than that. But I guess my question is, I mean, if people are hearing it from God, maybe not daily per person, but you know, overall and continually, like, is that something that, you know, like, are we experiencing that because of stuff that's found in nature or is that something else? Because, I mean, meteor showers don't happen every day. Yes, he's still trying to identify what are the things that would be naturally occurring. So he believes that electromagnetism is naturally occurring, but that doesn't mean that he's identified in what levels and where it would be. For example, again, people believe that the year that Joseph Smith had all the visions and stuff, there was a lot of electromagnetic activity, and they would say that that's probably the reason he saw angels and had all those visions. That's their explanation, which, by the way, even among scientists, is hotly debated. Right? So he's kind of seen as a fringe scientist, although he gets a lot of attention because his idea still attacks a basis of faith. So it's like they don't like the method, but they kind of like the outcome. I mean, the outcome really excites people. Cormac. I'm just kind of response to that. Like, there are actually like spiritual hotspots hot that like, people from different places around the world like, like go to to like have spiritual experiences. And they do, there's a lot of electromagnetic activity in there. So like, and also to like defend kind of the God helmet a little bit. Like everyone's brain in the details is different, and so of course, like, like eighty percent is actually a good number for like any kind of neuroscience research. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, like, it's, that, that doesn't rule out the fact of, like, um, like, me looking at this right now is stimulating activity in my brain, because, and I could actually see it, but just because someone could reproduce something that's not there and, like, make the same activity doesn't mean that, um, that, like, what I'm seeing right now isn't really there. Okay. Let me conclude it like this. First, if you enjoyed this and you're kind of new to this, come back. We do this every week. <laughs> so the conversation doesn't have to stop here. Um, I think that the best way to understand this is assume for a moment that you do have a station in your head that God can broadcast to. Just assume that for a moment that there's a station. It's 95.9. It's safe for the whole family. In your head <laughs> that God can broadcast to. Don't get me started. <laughs> Let's assume that there is a station like that in your head. And God could use it. And we accidentally discover how to send electrical impulses to it that make it do weird things. What some people, by the way, even scientists conclude, they can't rule out faith. They can't rule out spirituality. And they'll say that Persinger's work follows that logical fallacy that Ben was alluding to. Which is even if you've stumbled on a part of the brain that reacts in this way, isn't it just as likely that God created us with brains that have those receptors so that he could communicate with his creation? Isn't that just as likely? And this brings us to the reason I even brought up this whole mess tonight in the first place. Because ironically, what some people are using to deny faith actually comes around if you flip it around to say, it might actually support what Dallas Willard has been saying all along that maybe... God is able to speak directly to us, which of course we know he's able. So maybe the better way to say it is, does he? And it would seem to be a strange design flaw if you put that ability into humans that you created and then not use it. Maybe it was there for that purpose all along. And that's what we need to talk about next week as we conclude this series is if it's true, which as I started the series, I thought half this room would be like, there's no way this could be true. If it's true that God is going to be able and is going to speak to you directly, if he's going to do that, then we need to figure out now how do I ferret out the different voices in my head as Morgan says, kind of tune into the frequency that he's using. And in a way, this research actually helps us to start doing that. We start to think, yes, maybe I was wonderfully made so that God could communicate with me in this way and I could learn to listen to his voice in that way. Don't hear it from me. How about you hear it from Paul himself, the epileptic man himself? <laughs> he says this in 1 Corinthians, which is kind of a little bit of a mystery, but so that it's not all my opinion tonight and NPR News. Listen to what the scripture says about this. He makes a point about how it's the spirit in us that enables us to even know what God is up to and know what God is saying. He says the spirit searches all things. Even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit in him? So just as men know their thoughts because their own spirit is inside of them, he says in the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So it's the spirit that knows the thoughts of God. But here's the twist. We have the Holy Spirit. He says we have not received the spirit of this world. We've received the spirit who is from God that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, 
expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept these things. The things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But we, we have the mind of Christ. What Paul is saying in this way is that maybe the reason this actually could work and God could reveal the mysteries that Paul goes on to describe, he's been talking about them for a while and he continues, maybe the reason we even get to get let in on what God is doing or even experience Him is because the Spirit resides in us. And that Spirit residing in us is our connection to the mind of God and to what God wants and what God reveals to us because we partake in Him by having the Spirit in us. So maybe in a roundabout way, we actually kind of agree with some of the things that were presented tonight. And they actually help us to understand that it's very likely this is true. Next week, we're going to pick up and talk about discerning that. Let me do this. We're going to close right now. I'll pray. We'll finish out a couple worship songs. And then please stick around and eat a lot of the food. <laughs> so let me pray for us. Lord, we're the first to confess this is a lot that we don't know and that we don't understand. And we're very tempted every time that we discover something new about ourselves, that we're somehow we're the ones that have learned something new when all along, Lord, we are your creation and you're the creator. And maybe all we're doing is we're stumbling into more and more things that just reveal to us how greatly and wonderfully we've been made. And so, Lord, if we've here stumbled onto the way that you communicate in part, then Lord, let us celebrate that we're people who are created with a direct connection to our Lord. And Lord, you assure us that we have the Holy Spirit who's been given to us as a deposit of the inheritance that's yet to come, and we belong to you because of the Spirit in us. So with that great future that we have, it should not surprise us that you would communicate to us as your sons and as your daughters. Pray this in your name. Amen.